So if you've got a Bible you'd like to turn with me, we're going to head to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 is the address. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but I just, I just wanted, I know it's not the, uh, you know, the feel-good introduction to a sermon, but I just wanted us to pray into something particularly as a people, and we, we make an effort as a church not to try and politicize our church, and to be honest, if we wanted to promote political causes, it'd be easy to have something every week that we spoke into and prayed into, but we also don't want to be unaware or unmoved by some of the, the circumstances that happen around us in society, and I'm sure all of us are aware that there's courts in our land currently, currently debating the sanctity of life and whether we've followed along those debates or not. You know, I, I just think that is one of those issues that for people who believe in God, we should be prayerful, we should be moved. I, I believe these are things that are, are close to the Lord's heart. And you know, this issue of abortion for my wife and I, I know I've shared this before, but in our first pregnancy, we went in at uh, 27 weeks and completely out of the blue, <clears throat> excuse me, we found out that the child that my wife was carrying was, was very sick. And so that began a, a long process. She was in, in and out of hospital, more in than out for the rest of the pregnancy as they closely monitored this child with what they called at that stage 4D scans. I mean, these things were amazing. And of course, you're in that kind of scenario where things are not looking good and, and we savoured those moments. We knew what sex the child was going to be, we'd given her a name and they were just these precious moments. We didn't know if those moments were the only moments that we'd get to share with this child and she was, she was our child. And so for us, you know, after having gone through that thinking that, you know, not only is it legal to terminate life, at that stage and later stages in pregnancies around the world and as a country we're heading in that direction as well. But it's celebrated. That's the thing, as, as these laws are passed, we've seen it in the US, we've seen it recently here, it's that, that celebration of something that I believe is, as I said, clearly wrong. And so can we pray into that? Is that all right? Did that come across okay? I didn't want that to be too heavy and weighty. But, you know, as I said, I think we need to be aware and we need to be praying into these things. So if you're friendly enough with the person next to you or you want to be friendly enough, grab a hand. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for our time together in the Word. Let's just see what the Lord might want to do this morning. So, God, thank you that as we come before you today, as we come before you at all times, that you are a God who hears. You're a God who's willing and able to move on behalf of the cries of your people. You continually remind us of your promises that if your people who are called by your name, if we would humble ourselves, if we would repent, if we would seek you and never stop continuing to cry out and seek the face of the living God, that you would turn and heal our land. And so we pray, Lord, that there would be a healing in our land, that rather than what is wrong being celebrated, that we would celebrate what is right, what is good, what is upright. And Lord, we, we ask particularly for those in our houses of parliament, we ask 
For those who are a part of the current processes debating the sanctity of life, we ask for wisdom. We pray that righteousness and justice would prevail. In Jesus' name, Lord, we ask you to move, even where it seems that there is no way. Would your mighty right arm of salvation go forth and make a way, we pray. We lift this nation to you. We thank you that this is your nation, the great south land of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would turn hearts back to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and your word and just ask that you'd speak to us this morning. We give you permission. We give you room. We're here for you, Lord, not to, to hear another teaching or another message. We're here to hear the voice of the living God. So whatever is on your agenda, let your will be done and your kingdom come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 1. We've finished the series in James, and we're not going to go and preach through First Peter again. Don't worry. We did that a couple of years back. I have something else on my heart for a, uh, it won't be so much of a longer series, but just a really important reminder. Do you ever have those moments? I had one of, one of these particular moments. Maybe you can relate to this. A couple of weeks ago, I was heading in the car on the way to Saturday morning netball. I don't normally do the netball run, normally my wife does. I was driving along with the kids in the car, just in autopilot mode. So the turn off to netball is also on the way to the turn off to the kids' school, which is where just in autopilot mode I think I thought I was heading. So I went straight past the netball turn off, driving down the road. I was about to turn into the school and all of a sudden one of the girls in the back pipes up. She says, Dad, where are we going? And you know you have those wake-up moments and you're like, I don't know, where are we going? What day is it? What year is it? Where am I? And I said, girls, why didn't you tell me? And they're like, well, we figured you knew where you were going. So lesson learned, bad assumption, never presume that your father knows what he was doing. Doesn't get any better. Thank you for the encouragement. I appreciate that. But, you know, it's, it's so easy for us at times to just go through life in autopilot mode. We're just automatically and forgetting where it is that we've come from or where we're going or where we are. And I believe it's so important for us to have those moments where we're like, hang on a sec, where, where am I? What day is it? What year is it? What's really important here? What's going on? And this, for me, is one of those moments. We've been in a book that's so practical and that's great there's this practicality that really speaks to the the everyday life we find that not only in the book of James but all the way through scripture and yet scripture also presents this incredible breathtaking panorama and we need to have both we need to have those realities okay I know where I am I'm in the car and there's a steering wheel and off we go and we also need to have those moments of hang on a sec let's just Take a moment to pause. Take a moment to, to drink in the bigger picture. And so really this is a series based on one particular word. I'll leave you in suspense. We'll read the passage and I'll point it out where we get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And he says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. 
Let's grab the context here. He's saying, and if you call upon God both as Father, as the one whom you know, his mercy, his, his tenderness, his compassion, he is our Father, and yet he is also a just judge. So that's the context. If, if that's your reality, if you know him as Father and judge, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. A little quick word of review there. If you were with, with us through the sermon series we did in this book, you'd know that there's this fascinating title that he, he addresses the particular letter of 1 Peter 2. He says, this is written to the chosen exiles. And there is this picture as you read through 1 Peter, both of the, this, this predestined reality of God choosing people. And yet, by the same token, there's this reality that we're exiles. It's a bit like if you're going through a, a foreign country and all of a sudden you find yourself out of your comfort zone. People are, are speaking a different language. There's signs that you can't read. There's strange customs going on all around you. And you think, I, I, I feel out of place here. He's saying, if, if, if that's the way that you feel in the world around you, then you're probably actually doing something right. Because we are exiles. We're just passing through. We belong to another kingdom. Our time here is so short. And then comes the real reality, the fullness of all eternity. So don't get too comfortable. And then verse 17, oh, sorry, verse 18, he says this, knowing that you were ransomed. Some translations, if you've got a new King James, in fact, probably more of the translations translate this particular word as redeemed. Knowing that you were ransomed. Now, first of all, to know. To know is, in this context, it means to perceive something, to turn the eyes and attention and perceive something, to hold it continually in your gaze. So Peter is saying, as you're going about your life, if, if you know he's, he's father, he's judge, you're conducting yourself, this, this is how you're to live your life is to know, is to, to understand, but also to never let this reality shift from your attention and your gaze. It's the reality that you are redeemed, that you are ransomed. We are ransomed and we're redeemed, and that's our word, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Let's just finish this off. You're ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your fathers, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then verse 20, just to grab a little bit more of the context, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him as you believe, raised from the dead, gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. Simply there he's saying, this is not an afterthought, this is not a knee-jerk reaction, this is the foundational plan of God to ransom, to redeem a people that was put into action before the foundation of the world. So let me ask you the question. It's the, it's the question that hopefully will frame the next few weeks together. Do you know? Is, is it something that both you're aware of and you're conscious of? And 
It never loses your sight, the reality of what it means to be ransomed or redeemed. Do you know that? Is it front and center? Is it there continually in your gaze? Or maybe for some of us, we've been so in autopilot that all of a sudden, hopefully, this might be that wake-up call to think, hey, hang on a sec, where am I? What day is it? What year is it? How, how is it that I've gotten off track here? Do you know what it means to be ransomed or redeemed? And I want to do this in a couple of ways. I want to look at this particular word, this particular theme, and obviously we see this not just here in Peter. In fact, it's not only in the New Testament. There is this, what we could call a scarlet thread of redemption, all the way from the garden to the eternal city. The storyline is proclaimed with this centrality of redemption. So we're going to explore that. This, this big panorama in this particular way. There's, as I said, two words in the English, ransomed, redeemed, which essentially in this context mean the same thing. But there's four words in the Greek. So some scholars actually, I should mention, would suggest there was six. It comes down to the nuances of the text. That's way above my pay grade. So we're going to stick with four. And I want us to look at these four words together. We're going to even practice them. Hopefully that will help us remember them. And each of these has an incredible, I believe, an incredible perspective for us, both in the, you know, the grandeur of God's plan, both in its outworking in our lives, and hopefully a, a moment that will really resonate in our hearts as we examine the reality of what it means to be redeemed. What does it mean that God has ransomed us? And, you know, as I was thinking about this, there was a time in church history where we'd hear a lot about it. There was songs about my Redeemer lives and you know, there, was, there was this redemption and, and perspective that came through in theology and, and songs, but it could just be me. It doesn't seem like that's something that's at the forefront of our conversation and the songs that we sing, and maybe that's just me. But I wonder whether this reality of redemption, of ransom, has lost it's luster. So here's your first word. Are you ready? Okay. That was not overwhelmingly enthusiastic. Hopefully the rest of us will get ready as we go. So I've gone to the effort to actually put this one up on the screen. If you're a fluent Greek speaker, you can work on the letters on your left. For the rest of us, there is a uh, paraphrase so that we can all pronounce it together. And on the count of three, you're ready to give this a go. This is the Greek word. This is the first of the four that talks about what it means to be redeemed or ransom. Ready? Should we skip it a go? One, two, three. Ag agarazzo, agarazzo. I heard a few variations there. That'll do. That'll do for our purposes. Agarazzo. And here is, thanks to Strong's Concordance, a definition to give us hopefully some useful perspective on what it is that this means. The word literally means to go to market. So there's an intentional action to go to market for the purpose of purchasing and specifically of redeeming or ransoming. So there's an active seeking and there is 
an active payment or provision that is made. So that's the first word. That's literally what this whole picture of of ransom or redemption means. And it's a couple of contexts here. Let me give you one scripture, Matthew 13, 46. You don't need to turn there, but this is where Jesus is is giving us some useful parables to, to illustrate and to demonstrate what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like that. And then he tells us a parable about a pearl of great price. And he says, it's like a merchant. The kingdom is like a merchant who's when, when he'd found a pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had. And here's the word, and agor adzoed it and bought it and redeemed it and ransomed it. And you see, there's, there is a number of commentators still who try and present this particular parable as a picture of us searching for a pearl. We're looking for something of value, and when we find it, we give all that we have. And, you know, it, it makes some sense logically. It certainly makes some nice songs. We've had worship songs that have reflected on that theme. But it's not fantastic theology. In fact, it's very bad theology for this reason. The kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about is not ultimately about us seeking God. It's about a God who sought us. It's not about us finding him as much as it is about him finding us. And it's certainly not about us somehow paying for or ransoming and redeeming the kingdom. It's the exact opposite. It's about a king who gave everything to ransom and to redeem a people. Even this, the picture of a pearl is a strange analogy because, of course, a pearl comes from a shellfish. Shellfish is not kosher. These are unclean animals. And so you can imagine the hearers, Jewish, good, presumably law-abiding people, most of them, and they're in shock and horror. Why is Jesus talking about a, a kosher animal? Pearls had no value to Jews. Some Jews traded in them, but only for the purpose of trading with Gentiles. It was a Gentile treasure. We could develop that theme more, but we won't. So here is a picture both of this active seeking and this active payment, the provision of God. A God who seeks and a God who provides. So let's just look at some examples of of that particular word, of that particular aspect. As I said, it's only one of four aspects, but it's an important one for us to ponder upon this morning. See, we see this right back from the beginning, and we all know the story very well. We had Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, and God sets them up. He gives them everything they could possibly imagine and think of. He says, with one instruction, do not eat from the tree. And of course, they disobey him and they eat from the tree. And then the very next scene is God doing what? How does he respond to these people who have disobeyed him? We see it in chapter 3. The picture is God seeking out Adam and Eve and not coming to, he's not coming to think, well, where are those two? I'm going to sort them out. I'm going to deal with this issue. If you read the nuances of the text, it seems that he comes calling out to them just with tenderness. Where are you? Hey, guys, what's, what's going on? So he seeks them out. And of course, 
we find them doing a number of things. First of all, it says they've sown fig leaves. See, they were aware of their wrongdoing, weren't they? They were aware of their sin. And so they sow themselves fig leaves, and obviously the fig leaves aren't doing quite a good enough job. So in the very next scene, they're then hiding away from God. Guys, where are you? Ah, oh, well, we were hiding away. And as the story unfolds, they begin to blame, justify what they're doing. Well, she made me do it. Well, the, the, the serpent made me do it. And what God does in response is fascinating. First of all, it says that he curses the serpent. Cursed be the serpent, he says. And he brings forth this prophetic word that from the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. We're going to pick up that theme next week. You see, not only is God here saying that he is going to destroy the work of Satan, but he is going to use the seed of the woman to accomplish it. There's a lot more to this story than first meets the eye. But then in 3.21, this is what I want to get to. Finally, and I'm sure we're probably all aware of this, God makes a covering of animal skins to cover Adam and Eve. I just want, want us to think about that picture for a moment. You see, somewhere in the Garden of Eden, then the Lord took an innocent animal. We don't read the details of the story. I wonder whether Adam and Eve were aware of the, the fullness of what was going on, of the fact that these garments that the Lord clothed them in came from an innocent animal as the blood of the animal soaked into the ground. I kind of imagine Adam and Eve maybe in that first moment. There's, there's some sort of a grasp, another element of what they've done that this sin has resulted in the death, in the spilling of innocent blood. Certainly this begins the story, the scarlet thread of redemption, of a God who comes to provide. And what, what would Adam and Eve, what was their testimony as, as they left the garden? You know, we, we messed up. We made the worst possible choice and mistake that we could ever have made. And yet, here's what we encountered. We encountered a God, and he, he didn't overlook. He didn't sort of say, oh, it doesn't really matter. We're well aware of our sin, and yet despite the greatness of our sin, he still sought us out and provided a covering. And that same reality still speaks to us today. It doesn't matter what Sin we have done. There is a God who proclaims from the beginning of Scripture to the end that he has come, not just to overlook your sin, but to ultimately cover it, that your sins would be washed away in the power of his blood that was shed upon the cross. This is Agorazo. This is the God who provides. Let's Fast forward some thousands of years, there was a man who walked up a mountain. He had this promise from God. He'd seen the fulfillment of the promise. And yet God told him to put it all on the line. How much will you really trust me? And so he proved himself to be faithful. He walked up the mountain not knowing what on earth was going to happen. He put his son upon the altar, and at the very last moment, the Lord stops him 
He says, you're not to go through with this. I've tested your heart. I can see that you now withhold nothing from me. Therefore, there is a ram in the bushes. Go and get the ram and put the ram, shed the ram's innocent blood upon the altar of sacrifice. What Abraham says in response is fascinating. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, he says, it says this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, what, what is Abraham's testimony? His testimony is, well, I stepped out in faith. I had no idea what was happening, but I choose chose to trust in the faithfulness of my God. And I can now testify that he is the God who provided. Agorazo, the God who provides. Some 400 years later, we encounter the people of God as a promise lying dormant of what God would do through Abraham. And yet the people here are in bondage and captivity, oppression is all around and into the midst of that scene. God sends a deliverer. And how is it that he ultimately delivers his people? He says, this is what you're to do. You're to take the blood of a spotless lamb. You're to paint it over the doorpost of your house. And as the angel of death passes over, you will be spared. You will be saved. And then in response to that particular event, we see in Exodus 12, 26, God institutes what we now remember as Passover. And Moses tells the people, when your children say, what, what is this all about? This is what you're to tell them. This is the sacrifice of the Lord's provision as he passed over. In the midst of the bondage, in the midst of the captivity, they saw too the agarazzo, the redemption of God, which then has such powerful imagery as Jesus begins his ministry. John the baptizer is there by the Jordan River. He looks up, he sees Jesus, the very first public proclamation of the ministry of Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the God who provides. You see, this is, and this, this is the reason that I believe this is so important for us. If we just stop to survey the wonder, just one section of the, the vast purpose and plan of God, the mystery of redemption, of ransom, there is a God who provides. There is a God who has always provided for his people. And there is a God ultimately who will continue to provide for all those who will trust in him. Of course, we see this so powerfully in the life of Jesus as he walks among us, as he puts on flesh, as he goes out of his way, the seeking king. He finds a Samaritan woman, finds her hiding away where nobody else would see her. And he seeks her out to give her a gift. 
living water. Drink this water and you will never thirst again. From the least to the least worthy, he then finds a a tax collector, a man who would have spent his life ripping off others. This man is the chief of sinners. Surely Jesus would not reach out to him. But from the least to the least worthy is the king who redeems, the king who ransoms, the king who searches out, the king who gives everything that he has for the treasure that is the very thing he gave his life for. It's you and me. See, there is a God who provides. Agorazo. There's a Savior who's greater than our sin. There's a love that's greater than our shame. There's power that's greater than our bondage. There's a promise that is bigger than any pain and suffering that we experience in this life. And I want us to see this in one more way, and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all four words this morning. If you're sitting there thinking he's only got through one, we've still got three to go. This is looking like it's a long sermon. Come with me to Revelation chapter 5. This is the last instance of this particular word that we will look at this morning. We see here, of, of course, the other end of the story. We've seen from the beginning a God who provides. We've seen throughout the Old Testament, many other examples we could use. In the life of Jesus himself, he came to provide. And here, as we see this scene, and there's the scroll and the lamb, as Jesus sitting upon the throne, there's all of these things happening. And in verse 9, it says, and they, and we could have some debate about who the they is, but let's just move on in the interest of time. And they sang a new song saying this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, here it is, you ransomed people. You redeemed a people. You sought out and you paid the price for a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign upon the earth. Now when we stand there before the Lord, when we join in with the song of the elders, with the angels, with the saints of the ages, what, what, a, what a joy that as we look back, we too will be able to sing that song and say, Lord, this is the one reality. There were some ups and downs. There was some struggles There's mountaintops, there's valleys, but here is the assurance that resonates in my heart. There was all the time a God who provided. He provided salvation. He provided every good thing I needed. He was there with me through the valley of the shadow of death. He was there providing a table even in the presence of my enemies. He is a God who who provides. See, what if we grabbed a hold of this reality? That it doesn't matter how many times we stumble and fall. 
What, rem- what matters is this, is a God who provides. He stands there ready to lift us up. It doesn't matter how great our sin and bondage has been. If we put our trust in him, it matters how great his provision of salvation is for us. It doesn't matter how great the problems are and the issues. What we can take assurance for is the provision and the power of our God. Has been there from the beginning. Manifests through the provision of Christ upon the cross. And we too will join with the saints of the ages. Saying praise be to God who ransomed this God of provision. So I want to encourage us this morning. Reassure your heart. Just take a moment and look with hopefully some fresh perspective into this reality of a God who ransomed. He ransomed you and he ransomed me. He sought us out. Not to shame us. Not to tell us how much we needed to act, get our act together the hoops we needed to jump through, the things that we needed to do. He sought us out because we were the object of his affection and he paid the price. The provision has been made from eternity past for every sin that we will commit, for every mistake that we will make, for every stumble, for everything that we will face. He has provided. Because he is the God of redemption. He is the God who provides for his people. So I want us to stand up. We're going to get the worship team back. As I said, we're going to finish with with communion this morning. Are we still alive? We're going to just sing a song of worship in response. And as we do that, we have the the communion elements at the front here and at the back. So there's an option for you either to move forward or to move backwards. If uh, Peter, would you mind just coming and getting the elements at the front ready? The Chilcots are at the back. And just as you feel led during this particular song as we respond in worship in this way you can feel feel free to come and as I always say is communion is is an open table if you this morning would like to come and to, to take the bread and and take the cup to remember what it is that Jesus has done the price that he's paid his body that was broken for us His blood that was shed and it was poured out as the provision for our sin, then you're welcome to do so. There's no compulsion if you're not in that place. We pray that there'd be a moment where you are. But particularly this morning as we we just finish in worship, as we remember the Lord by taking the bread and the cup together, it's, it's my 
prayer that we would reassure our hearts, that we would recalibrate, that we would remember that there's a God, that we would testify with, with Adam and Eve that, you know, when we have messed up, there is the God who provides. That with Abraham, as we're stepping out in faith when there's uncertainty, that in those moments, there is a God who provides. That as Moses and the Israelites found that when there's, there's bondage and there's captivity, there is a God who provides. Every season and circumstance, there's a God who seeks out, He redeems, He ransoms you and I. So let's sing together. Let's remember the Lord by just taking the bread and the cup together this morning.